From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Lee Mayer, the co-founder and CEO of Havenly, the online interior design platform. I spoke with Lee about her startup journey, the challenges and opportunities for designers in the internet age, and how her company is bringing design to a whole new audience. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor. The next great ideas in style, design, and home. The next business innovations. Your next inspiration. You'll find them all at High Point Market, October 19th through the 23rd, where the next person you meet might be the key to your next success. Get your free pass to High Point Market now at highpointmarket.org and get ready for what's next. Part fabric, part magic. Krypton exists to make your world smart and beautiful. With earth-friendly spill, odor, and stain protection, fabric intelligence is all they do. You'll find Krypton in over 80 High Point Market showrooms. Join Krypton and brand partners like Airbnb for exclusive market treats, events, and experiences, including the roving Krypton ice cream cart, the SoCal Social at Norwalk, and designer favorites the Krypton Patio, Universal Beauty Lounge, and Pooch Pop-Ups. Reserve your place now at krypton.com slash hpmkt. And now, on with the show. Lee, I know you moved from New York City to Denver, Colorado, and that led to you ultimately starting Havenly. Tell us the story. Yeah, you know, moved out there, and it turned out um, one of the features of Denver is it's actually quite a bit less expensive than living in New York City. Right. And so, as it turns out, are most places on as planet it, Earth as it, pretty much? Interestingly, yes, ninety-eight yes. percent right, yes, of the world. As, as it turns out, um, but but so Denver sort of noticeably so. Noticeably, and particularly at the time, okay. um, I think it's, it's two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. Um, one of the things that we started to think about was. Um, should I pursue something that was a little bit more interesting to me? And so that's how we started, ended up developing the idea for Havenly. To be perfectly honest, I thought someone else should have started. Um, I had thought about it for a while prior to taking my first steps to starting the business. But I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I could have something that allowed me to find the things that I want for my home? Um, and it was as broad as that. And it, it really, you know, the, the conceiving moment was a little bit of this. I moved from my, you know, tiny 700 square foot, as mentioned, apartment in New York. And I right. had all this furniture like folded down on the sides. Don't judge me. I just did. No, 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 no judgment here. <laughs> and then I moved to this house and it was, um, you know, we had two living rooms. What does one do with two living rooms? <laughs> you had all this extra room. I had and a lot of rooms. Um, and tiny little New York and I had furniture. Tiny and folded down furniture I and, get it. Um, and a lot lot of you know floors to cover and I was working a lot of hours um, and I came home one night incredibly frustrated sitting on the floor like kind of like ugly crying and hunched over this laptop trying to figure out what to put in this room because I just wanted it to look nice um, and I found myself at a point in which I was very frustrated not just because I didn't have the time, but I also felt like I didn't have the wherewithal um, to sort of put it together at that moment in time. Um, unfamiliar, if you're if you're not someone, typically again, consumers don't shop for furniture as frequently as they do, say, apparel. As it turns out, yes. as it turns out, yes. And so, you know, what do I know? A and right. then B, you know, there's this idea that it has to be fairly personal. So, um, and so, all of that contributed to this paralysis around the decision making for me. You know, as luck would have it, you know, once you're looking for something, you find more people um, that are echoing that message. This was hard for me. I wish there was something else. So you found a community around this this Yeah, notion. and if not a community, at least enough positive signals from, you know, my very small and, and um, <laughs> network, uh, both in Denver and New York, that... Um, that where I felt like there was an interesting business opportunity, and I told it to everyone. Um, I was like, "You guys should start this. You should totally start." You this. encouraged others Other to, to take this on. And there were two reasons for that. First, I kind of thought of myself as a boring consultant, financy person. You didn't see yourself I as an entrepreneur. No, because you know entrepreneurs wear black turtlenecks and they're magical and they talk with their hands. Um, but you're really smart, and I mean, highly educated. Why, and thank well, you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, no, I mean, I've, I've I've watched presentations that you've oh, given, okay. and I. 
Yeah. I mean, you're you're clearly yeah, I a mean, very smart woman who seems capable of anything that she really sort of sets her mind to. So yeah, is that where you, you sort know, of got eventually I mean, in your I, own I head? Or? No, I mean, I still oftentimes wake up and, and wonder about how I ended up here. Not in a bad way, just in a, what were the sequence of events that sort of led me to make what I think was a fairly uncharacteristic decision for me. Hmm. Um, I'm a pretty risk-averse person. Okay, um, so that was part of in it. In general, I right. mean, people don't pursue, I think, the roles and responsibilities that I've pursued in the past without some need for security. I blame it on my Indian mother, um, who, who's like still disappointed that I'm not a doctor. Very strange. <laughs> <laughs> Mothers, like, they like never just, get over it. They really don't. Right? Um, it's still today, you know, she's sort of like, you know, med school. Is but she'll eventually <laughs> become a doctor, right? She's like, when you're done you know, with they, this online this design, this weird, but you'll eventually like, go back to... startup thing. Um, yeah. yeah, you know... Uh, Love my mom, but, uh, you know, I right. think I think that dream has died. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think that there are a couple of things that sort of stood in my way. And honestly, when, in, when I was in New York, the opportunity cost for me to start something was fairly high. Um, and then my expenses were also fairly high. Mm. So those things combined with my risk aversion combined with probably just a, a general sort of imposter syndrome around whether or not I can actually hack it in the entrepreneurial world created this very boring and basic career path. Not that it's a bad one, just a pretty basic one. Um, And actually removing myself from, I think, a lot of the pressures of New York allowed me to actually start to think about this as something that maybe I could get involved with. Mm. When did you and your sisters, right, sort of decide, no, 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 we're going to do this? So Emily um, actually lives a few blocks from here. Right down the street. Right down the street. Um, But my sister is, uh, for whatever reason, a lot more daring than I am in things like fashion, Mm. Um, but also, as it turns out, in her career. So much more comfortable taking risks and doing doing things that are a little off the beaten path, Um, much less beholden to what will my mom think than Mm. I am. And we kind of just dipped a toe in, and then... All of a sudden, what ends up happening, I think, sort of naturally to a lot of us is it's all you think about, Mm. you know? So when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Everything looked like an online interior design problem. Like, I couldn't figure out what to eat today, and it was an online interior design problem. We can fix that. We can fix that online. (laughs) Bring in some designers. Yeah, Yeah. it's going to be great, you know? It's going to be great. Um, So it was literally everywhere, you know, screaming at me. There were were signs. I felt like the universe was compelling me to go there. Um, But I I really think it it sort of took over my day-to-day thinking to the point where I stopped looking for, quote, a real job. And I started to work on this idea. So it's it's always interesting to me when I talk to people who came from outside of the design mm-hmm. world, right? Who didn't have all of the sort of preconceived notions on the one hand. So yep. you, right. So you sort of make your make your way, and and I assume you started to take some some steps forward. Maybe you discovered some things about yep. some of the complexity of what often can be sort of a Byzantine little little business. The, yeah. Right. The interior yeah. design. Yeah. Business. It is. It's uh, you know. I think for me. So the first thing we did, I think, is we brought on a couple of designers. Just you know, um, you know, our head of design has been with us since those are very early days, and. Um, I think primarily it was our our desire to kind of understand if this is something that can be scaled online. I mean, great premise, right? The idea that any service and any business can be brought online and sort of can operate in the same functional way as it does in the offline world. And the question around design is, is that actually true? And I know that's probably a question you're going to ask me sometime later on. Because it's it, all over this interview, ladies. This, this entire interview is going to be about scaling, scaling interior, interior design, design online. high-touch service. Very can it be touch. done? And I think I think what's interesting is, and we took a, a little bit of a different approach. I, you know, I think in in retrospect, in that we were trying to scale this not for people that were using traditional designers. If you're using an offline traditional designer and you're happy with that process, I don't know that you're going to love ours. Maybe we certainly have that. I've used traditional interior designers. I still love our process. Um, but I think from our perspective, we were trying to figure out if there was a way um, to create accessibility um, around this idea of elevated design without it being nearly as high touch as it might be in, say, an offline setting where someone is coming into your home and executing the full design. 
Right. It was a, a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a controversial idea at the time. I think it's still a controversial idea. And I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but if the large majority of American home renters and homeowners under the age of 40 are not using a traditional interior designer, is there a way to get them a half step further? providing a service that's ultimately accessible from a price point perspective, but also hopefully scalable for us as a business. You know, the best way of putting it is, you know, there's the cooks versus chefs. Mm. You know, we're not necessarily coming in and hand weaving your rug. However, we are helping you discover items, create some validation around what you're doing, and hopefully ultimately being, you know, an authority for you to lean on um, as we collaborate to design your home. It's not, certainly not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and, and to do what you're doing. To do what we're doing. Yeah. And, and, and you can see that, I think, um, this space is sort of thus far, at this point, can I say littered? It's not well, littered well, with, it's, with, it's, with companies that haven't, haven't quite gotten over that hump. Exactly. So it, it, so it's starting to to feel like it's 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 littered with yeah. with some of the companies yeah. that just haven't yeah. been able to figure it out. Yeah. So I've been in the in, I've been in this industry for for many many yeah. years despite yeah, my course. my youthful glow. I <laughs> right. So I uh, so I've been I've been in this industry for a long time and yeah. I and I've and I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. who come into this space both with experience and without experience yeah. in this space uh, and really several years back, really sort of, so 2014 was mm-hmm. when you were really yeah, yeah, right, yep, yep, starting Hitler. Yep. And to, to your earlier point, there was this, there was this notion that this business was so disruptable on so many yeah, levels, yeah, right? Because yep. it seemed scattered. There were no big players, sure. right? Yep. And so they thought, oh, we're just going to roll this right up. Yep. You know, look, Starting a business is always hard. And starting a consumer business is probably the hardest thing that any entrepreneur can do, she says, as she, like, rues the day. <laughs> she, she, Wondering, wait, why, wait, why, why I am I here? Hey. Yeah. Um, I should have been a doctor. Uh, and, but, and again, your mother believes there's still time. So <laughs> let's focus time. on that. Uh. Um, but I, I do think, so in 2014, 2015, you have to remember what was going on in the market. And what was going on in the market was Uber. Exactly. And I'm always kind of fascinated by this idea that there is one company or one model and it's inordinately successful as Uber was, um, or Airbnb actually, frankly, at the time too. Um, this I- But Uber in particular, because it was a service, this idea that you can create a marketplace of service providers and just dominate in any market that's sort of fragmented and has independent contractors that are unable to find work in a timely manner. Thus, our service largely was born, right? Um, not just our service, a lot of other services that um, were predicated on this idea that you can get service providers to sign on to a platform and what they trade off in a cost per job, mm. they're making up for because you're providing them, you know, sort of timely work. And, and, and when you were talking to, to venture capitalists early on, is that what they were hearing when, when you were presenting what you were planning to, to do? I think so. Is that so. what resonated yeah, I think with them? It was, it was this, you can create an Uber of X. Right. And we were just an X in a whole, you know, I would say a, a whole large category of marketplaces that wanted to be the Uber of X. Um, it was a time of marketplaces. Um, yes. And a lot of those, frankly, have, haven't done very well. Because, you know, one of the things that I think Uber has that you don't get, say, in the home space, so just narrowing down on this category, is I take, I'm, I, over the course of today, I will have taken 14 Lyft rides right um over the course of today versus uber yeah sorry whatever you wonder why the stock's not sorry, sorry get back to the initial um, <laughs> public offering price because uh, she's taking lift yes. all right yeah, it's me it's me yeah. personally taking you lift that is taking the their share back. price yeah Sadly. yeah yeah it's weird um yeah. i should be getting a phone call yes. <laughs> exactly um but i will probably over the course of today only buy one thing for the house and that's probably only because i happen to work in this industry right and so the frequency is very different also, and this is something we were getting back to, you know, I took a lift here today and it was kind of smelly. Like it was kind of like a smelly lift. It wasn't a very high quality lift, but it got me Again, from, you're in New York now, I, okay? <laughs> you're not back in Denver, what all right? Is that? That's, Why uh, is this in a Denver? Welcome to New York. Yeah. Right. So anyway, you know, smelly-ish Uber, but it got from, from point A to point B, so I will use Lyft again because the utility of Uber or Lyft sort of supersedes the quality of the Uber or Lyft. It's the, I'm getting from point A to point B. Right. 
it can't be that way in design. You know, a lot of our, our venture friends again, approached it with an Uber model. But the fact of the matter is, is we're different. Um, And we're a very consumer-based business. We're in home. It's a slower growth business. So don't expect the 30X in one year. Um, We are a, again, a business in which we're trying to scale to your point, a very high-touch, personalized approach. Or what has traditionally been thought of as such. But it still is. I mean, even even on our platform, um, I think people are a little surprised by how much personalization we have to do. Mm. We can't just have a plug-and-play design on the back end, um, as some of our competitors have done, and have it work. You know, there is like a decent amount of personalization that we have to invest in. And, you know, we're not of the belief, and this is like, again, another favorite VC ask, can you remove the human from the process? (laughs) And I'm like, no, because then you're left with Amazon. You know, I mean, Amazon maybe with like better, better merchandise so, aspects. But they, they want you to automate the process as I much mean, as you possibly can. It's like can. your classic tech investor thing, and it, it again, sure. I understand why. Sure. Um, because when you're an investor in technology, that's been a very successful play for you. Right. And I think the question is a little bit more around: Does it apply to this category and to this space? Right. Um, and so I, you know, again, I, I wonder. One of the things I, I would say early on is actually, and this is an accident. This is by no means me. I love it because I can sit here with like forethought and say, well, I didn't take early stage well, investment in the let in the me amounts. Tell you why? Yeah, I made this like I, I decision sat there and I said, on. no, I will not yeah. take your money, no. Mr. VC man. I will sit on the sidelines and wait yeah. until you know. That's not what happened. I couldn't raise money. I mean, that's like ultimately the truth. You know, some of these folks. The truth like, is, you got turned down quite, turned, quite a bit. Turned er, down. Early I mean, on. and. And primarily because we had other competitors that I think were either better connected or certainly um, better equipped in a lot of ways to to surface a pitch like that. Mm. My pitch was always, look, we're not going to be 10x next next year, and we, you know, this will be a personal process, and we do have to create an augmented marketplace. It won't be a fully open marketplace. There's a lot of operational complexity that we have to build. VCs don't love that. Um, they really yeah. don't. I, w- I was, you know, but you but you want someone on board that kind of appreciates your point of view. Um, and, and look, there are a lot of other reasons that I suck at fundraising. I'm like super open to talking about it, but, um, but uh, <laughs> yes, please tell us all the reasons why you're really bad at raising money, Terrible. despite the fact that you've raised almost $30 million. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I, but like, this is my point, you know, your home polishes and your Laurel and Wolves, um, out raised me in the early days. And, and then what happened? So I mean, so so why 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 did Laurel and Wolf not make it? Why why did Home Polish not make it in your in your educated opinion? I'm a little less familiar with Home Polish because they're a slightly different space. I've always admired what they've been doing. Um, again, a little at a distance. Um, Laurel and Wolf, and and broadly, I think a lot of companies that raised money in 2015 um, were just, I think, to some degree, victims of something very external to them, which was their valuation. Um, and that's tough. Me- meaning what? Meaning that so, they, the, the money came so, in at sort of too high yeah, a level? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that can happen. Again, I, I don't know all of the nuts and bolts of the Laurel and Wolf story, but I think fundamentally, you've, you've seen this broadly across a lot of consumer companies that fundraised in 2015. They raise at, at, at levels that are super high. So they'll raise at sort of this nine-figure level, and they have seven low seven figures in revenue. Right. You're getting to a spot where not only do you have to... Um, you know, grow out of your current valuation. You haven't even grown into your current valuation. You can't bank on you being the golden child for more than one round. Yeah, it's totally fine to be the golden child. And I think you know, when I was fundraising for my Series A, Laura, Laurel and Wolf had just closed their round of capital, and it was very clear to me that they were, as they should have been, I think, very favored within the valley. Everybody um, thought they owned it at the time. Oh, I mean, everybody, yeah. th- they were keeping people away. Totally. Right? Because yeah. everybody thought they had it locked up. Yeah. I mean, like, look, they were, they came out of the gates very strong from a funding perspective. Um, they had really blue chip folks on their, um, on their cap table. So benchmark, an, it, U- an Uber exactly. investor, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Um, and Lyft, maybe. They have a very impressive roster. Very right. impressive roster. And, and, they're, so, and they're really smart people. This is not, the, this no, is, no, you again, know, it's... And again, this this notion of, and, and, and we talk about this uh, a lot with all, all, the, all the poor people yeah. like you who have to keep raising money, is you so not sad. only have to keep raising money, but you have to keep promoting the money that you just raised, totally, right? Yeah, and yeah, and you, have to, worst, yeah. you have to tell yeah. people, oh my, oh my gosh, I just raised yeah. another $3 million, yeah. and let yeah. me tell you about this yeah. impressive group that lined up to fund the round. Sure. And it... 
it's exhausting. We don't. We, it's I it's mean, it's pretty exhausting. It's pretty exhausting. And, and there's like by the way, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance around the fundraise announcement. So um, let me put it to you this way: my father's an entrepreneur. Um, he calls himself a small business owner, but he was an entrepreneur. And he every time we raise a round of funding, he says something like, "You know, in my day, we just spent less than we made." <laughs> you know, his point being the following: the only thing you know about a company that has been able to raise a round of funding is one, the founder is able to raise a round of funding, and two, they're probably unprofitable. Yes. And those are like the only two things you should take away from those announcements because the cognitive dissonance for the CEO is this. It's, I am announcing this fundraise and almost always you're a little uncomfortable with it because again, it means you're wildly unprofitable to you know millions of dollars. And everyone's congratulating you. Like it's something you've accomplished. And don't get me wrong, it's hard to raise a round of funding. I appreciate that people are congratulating me. But you do, it feels very like, I have to do something with this money, then congratulate me. In, in this space, it has seemed elusive yeah. to, to really bring it back to, to profitability. Yeah. And everybody wanted scale. And as you were saying, the, the investors have, it's, it's not a conflict of interest, but it, it seems whatever great trading system it's they have. It's basically gambling. Exactly. And you need to put... $10 million bets on each of these companies and have them go. Right. Um, and again, I, 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 I am painting the venture capitalist with very a very broad brush. Um, of course. But it is, I mean, look, we'll it's, it's, the, it's sure. the reality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as, as, I, yeah. as she gets phone calls. Um, it's a reality. And I think, I think when you think about a business like Home Polish that was fantastic and successful on its own and it took capital, and again, I don't know the details of what happened, but I think that that's, you know... Fundamentally, one of the structural problems with companies in the home space, again, home, different category, um, right. very different than apparel and very different than transport and food. And, and you know, I think, frankly, if I think about my personal story, all of your blue chip investors, except for like two, turned me down. So I took the money from the like two. And, um, and luckily, you know, when... I talked to them. I think the reason they took me is they resonated with the fact that I was at least trying to be somewhat authentic about what I thought would happen. Now it was I was wildly off, but at least uh, about how the business would about grow how the business and, would and grow. about what would happen. Let Let's yeah. pause for a second, yeah. uh, because I feel like we might have jumped a little bit ahead of our mm -hmm. listeners, mm -hmm. who and we're all assuming that they that they, they know all of this. They know all of everything. This. Exactly. They follow it every day. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Our inaugural Future of Home conference was a huge success. If you missed it, you still have an opportunity to explore one of our industry's transformative ideas, subscription furniture, at High Point Market. Get your free pass today at highpointmarket.org and join me, Dennis Scully, for a conversation with Gavin Steinberg and Megan Hopp of The Everset, Saturday, October 19th, at The Point on Commerce. I'll see you there. You'll find Krypton's fabric intelligence in over 80 High Point Market showrooms. Krypton's exclusive fall market treats, events, and experiences include a High Point First, designing spaces for hosting with Airbnb. And don't miss the roving Krypton ice cream cart, SoCal Social at Norwalk, and designer favorites the Krypton Patio, Universal Beauty Lounge, and Pooch Pop-Ups. Reserve your place now at krypton.com hpmkt. And now... Back to the show. Let's have you describe for, for people both sort of what, what Havenly was when you were first sort of pitching it, and, and now obviously it's, it's grown dramatically over the, over the years, over the five years, yeah. right, since, yeah, you, since years. you started mm -hmm. it. Um, in the beginning when you, were, when you were pitching the idea, what were, you, what were you telling people you were setting out to do? So my first pitch definitely had the Uber of X in it. Okay. Of course. <laughs> know your market. As it would. Know your audience. Absolutely. Um, but, I and mean, they perked right up when you and, mentioned And they, that. yeah. Right? Uber of what? <laughs> Uber of, <laughs> yes. I probably could have put anything in there and I would have been at some, you know, at least a little bit successful. And most of them probably didn't know very much about the home space either. No. If, right? Very or, rarely when what? you're pitching your typical 45 to 50 year old male Silicon Valley investor, will they say, oh my goodness. Oh. Let's talk about interior designs. Yes. <laughs> They'll say something like, oh, I should talk to my wife 
about this, but right. they're very rarely say something like, oh, I've spent a lot of time diving deep into the space. That's changed over yes. the past couple of years, but, yes. um, but certainly, you know, unfamiliar market. So a lot of what we were trying to do was explain to a very wealthy male 40-something individual why, and we used a sort of fictional character named Adam, who actually Adam at the time was a, a good friend of mine. He was 27. He was a bachelor. He was getting his first job, moving out of his sort of frat boy apartment. And he needed a place that felt like he was an adult, that he could bring women home to and friends home to. Um, but no clue about sort of the design process and didn't have the budget to sort of, or the time to necessarily go with a traditional designer. And we use that example because I felt like it was easier than talking about who really is our primary clientele, typically a woman. Mm. But because I felt like maybe that investor who now has, you know, bajillion dollars. Um, you thought they'd be able to recall a time to recall when that were... time. Yeah. Sure. And so I used a guy when in a Patagonia vest and yeah. like, I think it was before Allbirds, but there, he was wearing like something generically, <laughs> you know, like something. Yeah, back something. in the day yeah, before, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, 2014. I guess, yeah. I guess people were wearing new balances. Right. You know. And, and at the time, were you envisioning that Adam would also be able to purchase the, the items that I you I think were? I'd always had that in You mind. always had that in Yeah, mind. and I think partially, it, you know, a lot of our business was inspired by some of the successes we saw in the personal styling space. So your stitch fixes and trunk clubs. In fact, I wish I could send you all of your stuff for your home in a box and you had to return it. I think my revenues would go up like Amazing. very well. Very, anyway. Yeah. Um, what was actually hard is translating the inspiration into reality. So I saw the inspiration. It was all over, um, you know, everything. Um, but the idea was, how do I get to a place where it's actually showing up at my house? Um, and that that miss for me, when you think about, say, a Pinterest, for mm. example, is getting to that transaction place where I'm comfortable clicking through, adding to cart, and buying was something that I felt was m a critical piece that was missing sort of in this category. So again, the translation from inspiration to reality. And so as a result of that, I felt like the e-commerce aspect was actually probably for me one of the most interesting. It's this idea that, you know, people are buying more and more things for the home online. How do I make it so they feel incredibly comfortable doing so and, and comfortable doing so at a larger, at a higher AOV and a higher purchase rate than, say, any other site out there? Right. Average order value for people at home oh, who sorry. don't know AOV. Yes. No, that's okay. Yeah, I just don't want to, again, with I have all listeners. of the acronyms. Yes. Yes. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very good at acronyms. Any well, but so, so, but so let's get into some of the complexities yeah. of, of, of the business. So, yeah. so again, going back to home polish, just because it's sort of fresh in our, sure. our yeah. minds, and, and we all, it really did seem like it was this great business yeah. at, at one time. And, and we all sort of knew a lot of the designers that were working on, sure. on projects. Yeah. It seemed as if they were actually, in a, in a way, able to get closer to that Uber model. Of course, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. that, that designers, even at mm -hmm. a, a much higher level, yeah. Yeah. could have good lead generation, could yeah. have meaningful projects, sure. and, uh, and, and that everybody could sort of win. The, yeah. the challenge seemed to be when you started to get into the economics of where were you really going to make money if yep. you're if you're home polish yep. and in the beginning it seemed like just the the spread on buying product was going to be enough and then that wasn't enough yeah. and then do you pass the trade discount along or do you not and yeah. then if you do, then that margin goes away. So where do you find new margin, right? I mean, I'm not telling you anything yeah. that you don't know. It's got to be incredibly complex when there's far less money involved, which is which is your operation. Yeah. You're coming in at how, how much are you charging people now, even for your full um, it's, process? It's, you know, between $169 and $199. Um, we test pricing quite a bit. But yes, under $200. It's under $200. Yeah. And what am I, what's the deliverable for under $200 from For Haven under $200, you are getting a full virtual room design. Um, which will involve a couple rounds of iterations with your designer, so collaboration online, um, a rendering of your room and a floor plan of the finished room as well, and then a shopping cart filled with items that you can buy. Our goal is to make the designer's job as easy as possible. So our North Star for the designer is they do what we call the last mile, the first and last mile of design. So the creation and ideation, and then sort of the creativity at the end and the finishing touches. And then we try and help them as much as possible with tooling so that they can make the middle part as easy as possible. So that's how we envision sort of scaling this in the future. Okay, so the, the tooling mm -hmm. is 
right? It, mm-hmm. it is software, is mm-hmm. algorithms, yeah. it, right? Yeah. Is all the yeah. is all the technology yeah. around it? Yes, and so we're nowhere near there yet. I mean, I'm sure certainly there are many designers that do quite a bit of work to help our customers achieve their vision, but that's our goal. Our goal is really can we take the stuff that the designer doesn't want to do and doesn't have to do out of the process, such that they're left with a project that's exciting to them, but also not a lot of work for them. Mm. Um, And thus, you know, that's how we're able to sort of maintain uh, a level of income for people that do this well, um, that, you know, I think hopefully, again, scales over time. But, you know, margin is like, frankly, I I think um, furniture is one of the most deflationary categories over the last 10 years since our last recession. Pricing in furniture has come down dramatically and promotional activity in furniture has come up significantly as well, which basically means that everyone I'm buying from is also getting squeezed on margin. So I'm getting squeezed on margin. Sure. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. And I think it's it's broadly what you're seeing across retail in general. Um, and so from our perspective, really, margin comes from two things. So the first is ensuring that the cost of the project, low, or I guess the, the cost to us of the project is low enough such that we make enough money to cover a customer acquisition cost before you buy anything. Because that's really like the mental math when you start to lose money on the unit. When you start to lose money on the unit, it means that my cost per unit is more than what I'm making for the unit. So, you know, it's sort of my dad's philosophy, except I ignore operating costs, right? <laughs> right? right. So, so like, you know, something as simple as that as in the event that you don't buy a single dollar from us, I'm still making money from you. It's actually a pretty big sort of internal metric that we think about. Which is huge for mm-hmm. for under two hundred dollars. I mean, for you to be able to to cover that, and is and is that in part because have your have your customer acquisition costs sort of come come down? Have you have you slowed your aggressive efforts in that in that area? I mean. Our average customer acquisition cost has always been pretty palatable, okay. um, primarily because, again, we never had the capital to like spend heavily into it. I mean, again, I, I'd love to say this is foresight on my part. It's just right. it was just a forcing function of managing a budget that was smaller. I think, frankly, if I had had twenty million dollars spent in twenty fifteen, we'd be having a very different conversation. Um, but I, th- you know, I think fundamentally we've just never spent as aggressively um and every time we had frankly you know in 2016 we spent a lot of money we had this marketing guy who was like flashy and he came from some fancy company <laughs> and he came in he's like this is what we're gonna do um nice guy but you know came from big companies which is um now a, used a to having bit of big a, budgets and used to having big budgets sure. it can be a red flag now i've learned um and we spent a shit ton sorry i'm, I'm not allowed to say that a lot of money yeah a lot of money <laughs> lot that's of what money. she meant to say <laughs> a lot. yes a very a large great, pile of a money a great deal of money Agreed. went into this effort um we spent a lot of money on um on paid acquisition and and this is when I knew that some of these companies are going to be in trouble because because you saw how quickly you could burn through that but also when I doubled my spending I didn't double my customers of course it is like you know sort of just this basic rule that if you are going to spend more you at least want it to be as productive or close to as productive as your first tranche of spending and it was so much less productive like by leaps and bounds, it's one thing if I double my spend, I get 98% increase in customers. I will double my spend and get 20% more customers. It was pretty dramatic. And that's when I went to the board and I was sort of like, look, guys, I don't know. You know, it's sort of tempting to throw money at the problem. But I think we should pull back and invest in other things. Um, and I think we should invest in things that drive organic growth things in are, a different way. Exactly. Yeah. So and and what were those things at the time? What was going to be more likely to drive organic growth for you? So, I mean, the biggest piece is just making people happy. Um, and I think, look, like our product, and I'm very honest about this, is not going to be for everyone. So if you're very comfortable with your $10,000 interior designer, that's amazing. The market is there, and it's, it's an incredible market. I'm super glad that it exists. Um, but frankly, we're probably not going to be able to serve you in the same way. Right. right. Um, and, but, but for the group of customers for whom we provide a very necessary um, access point to elevated design, I think the idea is, can we make all of them feel really good about their experience with us? And so there are two things that go into that. So first is, you know, figuring out how to make sure our designers are great and that they scale in greatness. So in other words, my millionth customer gets the same treatment as my 10th customer. 
and you know everyone feels good about it so it's scaling the operational processes there and then two it was investing in technology so that this very human and complex business can over time become simpler and simpler right um and so that's what we did we took the money out of marketing i remember this board conversation it was a very um it was actually a very good one, but it was it was a, a lot. There was a lot of discussion around this. We took it out. We invested into our technology team, and um, you know, we frankly we shut off marketing for I think it was Q the end of Q three and the beginning of Q four in twenty fifteen. Um, you know, the the idea being let's grow into this because it's just math. So the thing is, your customer acquisition cost, average customer acquisition cost comes down if a lower percentage of your customer base is coming from paid marketing spend. In other words, if I'm mixing my paid marketing dollars with a lot of people coming in inbound, then my customer acquisition cost on average is pretty low. And so that's what we did. Um, And, you know, we're lucky to be in a space. Home is something that's, again, the cultural zeitgeist around home is tremendous right now. you know, you turn on anything and, and there's like a before and after. And it's a, all about design. It's, it's, it's all about the all home. About yes, home. Right. And, and as you were saying earlier, uh, servicing a customer that was likely to otherwise never have come in contact with an interior mm-hmm. designer, but you presented this easy service yeah. at, at such an affordable price point. Yeah. And all you had to convince them was that you could create this space that would Totally. Make, right? That yeah. would be... These are people that want to feel at home in their space. And they want to do that in a way that's delightful and easy and fun. They don't want to necessarily, you know, have potentially a full design experience. Or maybe they can't access that for whatever reason. Um, but they do want something that's beautiful and that feels like them. And where they feel like they're getting good deals. And they feel like they're having a cohesive space. And a space that kind of gets down to the level of detail that a designer may bring. But, you know, it's not your sort of B&B Italia custom furniture leather right. type of stuff. Can yeah. you buy that? Can you buy? You can't actually. Yes. Okay. And so, so we actually you have, have access to all these trade do, brands if you yeah, want. Yeah, we do. And and we have a pretty, so I'd say, you know, between 15% of our business, 15 to 18% of our business is um, what we call a higher end customer. So these are people that would say overlap with a home polish customer. Okay. Um, and typically they come to us for one reason. And the reason is it's easy to do this online. And sometimes when you're working, it's almost all working women professionals. Um, so it's CMOs of large companies, you know, people that again spend most of their time outside the home. So for them, you know, typically, and again, I'm, I'm being incredibly heteronormative here, but typically in the customers we see, um, it's the woman making the furniture purchase mm. decision. If the woman is working outside of the home, this is an easier way to get things done and buy things, um, typically than meeting with your interior designer who sometimes wants to meet at, you know, Tuesday at 2 p.m., which is sort of a not something that many, many people can right. execute when they're working a full-time job. So um, so we do have that segment of our customer base, and we do a lot of business with them, and they're, they contribute to an outsized portion of our revenue, obviously, because we've got larger budgets. And so for them, we maintain a different scale of relationship um, and we have different sources and we do have a lot of trade partnerships as well. Okay. Well, so so that's interesting. And I, and I think listeners will be will be interested to sort of hear how that's, yeah. how that's working for you. Yeah. Because again, as we were talking about, one of the challenges with, with scaling this has been maintaining those margins, mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. other areas of, of, of revenue, and whether that's ultimately getting into private label furnishing, yes. right? Yeah. Which yeah. is obviously a natural yeah. next yeah. step, and I'm assuming had to be part of some pitch. It, yeah, in if, if, if fact, it was. Right. The, you know, the best part about Wayfair is it's, <laughs> um, I mean, there are, I mean, I quite like Wayfair, but one of the best parts of Wayfair for me as a business person is it's opened up a lot of wholesale folks to selling their wares online and also becoming comfortable with either white labeling or private labeling um, in a way that, say, you know, five years ago when I started this business and I was, you know, literally laughed out of every high point showroom, um, people were like, no, we don't want to sell online, which, you know. It was still 2014, by the way. This is not, yeah. this isn't like 1985. This is like 2014. <laughs> exactly. This wasn't most, a generation when, ago. This, this was really this just, was a, few years just ago. a few years huh. ago. Um, huh. But a lot of those folks have started to do business with um, either Amazon or Wayfair um, and have seen, you know, their their companies 10x, 12x, 3x, whatever it is, um, in a very short period of time. And so now we have access to some of those relationships. And we're also at the scale where we can have a little bit more access to those relationships, frankly. But... Um, 
they're also comfortable with working with someone like us, an online-only provider, and potentially partnering with us to go a little bit deeper mm. into whether it's private label or sort of special lines or you know something of that sort. So. We are sort of, you know, quietly, not so quietly at this point, moment in time, but because um, we're announcing it we're publicly, announcing, yeah. we're announcing it publicly. This, this, gonna go this out. is this yeah. is great. I yeah. have a name for you. I'm just kidding. I do, <laughs> but you'd have to ask Veronica. And really? She'd, she'd okay. yell at me. Um, okay. She does that a lot. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we've been sort of quietly under trying to understand where where there might be an interest in the market and where we can sort of fit in. I mean, I think one of the things that we have is we have millions and millions of data points on customers, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they were sourced, what they didn't buy, what they bought, um, where they bought it. Um, and so trying to take a little bit of a database approach will still be designed forward, but um, where are there holes in the market? There's some obvious ones, you know, ultimately trying tell to us, find... Tell us what some of the obvious ones are. So one of the most obvious ones is like really bizarre. So, um, but I fall into this category of humans that seems to be unable to keep anything alive. Although I have a dog <laughs> and two children, so I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so <laughs> thankfully they're all alive. Okay. But, but we have like people right. taking care sure. of them that aren't me. Plants, on the other hand, like literally not it like comes suit. into my house... <laughs> Um, and it does. I don't okay. know. It's like my witchy aura. Um, anyway, so faux florals have been um, been pretty popular in our household in the in the Lee Mayer household. Um, but faux florals are really ugly. I didn't want to say Lee because uh, <laughs> you seem really, attached to them. But really, I've yet really to meet the faux pretty. floral that I want to spend a lot of time with myself. But uh, maybe I've just been dating the wrong ones. Well, so one of the things that we were thinking about is there is actually a company that makes pretty good faux florals and I'm not going to name them but um, because they're a future partner because they're a future partner okay um, but they do it pretty well now the problem is their their selection of faux florals doesn't necessarily match our market and then their pricing is a little bit off I and see. so one of the things that we're sort of thinking about is is there a way to provide nicer faux florals mm. something that maybe you wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with but you're comfortable having in the corner that you never think about i have a big house sure. um, so oh, and you've got to fill it up yeah i'm never going to remember the corner behind mm -hmm. my chairs in my bedroom that i never go into um but that you're but that you're actually feeling okay about um and that's actually sort of an obvious one another one is um again we don't work with ikea um although i'd love to um, if they're listening, if you're yes, listening, we're very open to that. We're very open. But they have a couple of really basic things that are so well-priced that it's impossible for anyone else to compete with. They do an incredible job. They do a really good job. Uh, I, I mean, love Ikea. I don't know my um, nose in the air about Ikea. I, I, I mean, you can't. Fundamentally, no. it would be, if no. you're in the business of home, yes, exactly. <laughs> there are many other things around home where you That's could, right. but the business of home, Ikea is um, doing know. very well. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, some, some basics that we sell through quite a bit from Ikea, and we're just trying to reverse engineer that with a couple of our partners so we can sell that instead. Um, well, right. And so that sort of begs the question of longer term, are you are you a design service, yeah. right? Or mm -hmm. are you... E-commerce. E exactly. Yeah. I think we've always thought of ourselves as personalized e-commerce. Um, so again, a good analogy might be a Stitch Fix. We actually have some overlap with our team um, nowadays. Um, and it's probably a large part of where we're coming from. Mm. So one of my thoughts on the e-commerce space in general is, um, and, and certainly the home e-commerce space in general is, you know, 30 years ago, you were effectively limited by whatever was carried in inventory f in your local furniture store. So in New York, you probably had great access, but you know, in Darnstown, Maryland, where I grew up, it was the three stores and whatever they had, and maybe some catalogs. And I think with the advent of the wonderful interwebs, um, you now have access to not 500 different items, you have access to 12 trillion. I think in our database alone, we have something like 13 million items. 13 million items yeah. that you could possibly from just, just from just Havenly. Havenly. And th this is like of the vendors we see or we've sourced from. Um, and so what ultimately ends up happening with the consumer that is, again, a little less educated in this category and where you know there's a level of permanence in this category is that they feel this paralysis around making a choice amongst 12 trillion items. Mm. And so my idea really, and again, design is such a great and natural and wonderful execution point around this. But ultimately the idea is, can I narrow down the 12 trillion to the 100 for you? 
and have it all make sense together. I mean, design is a sort of a collective process, right? You can't just buy one thing and one thing and not sort of think about it together. So there is a little bit of this like sort of cohesive design element angle. But the vision is, you know, whether it's uh, full scale interior design, I'm moving and I'm starting my room from scratch. Um, or it's, you know, I want a piece to make this wall feel great or I want to refresh for the holiday that we have this ability to take you from the 12 trillion to the 100. And, you know, again, my, my philosophy is that you do need a designer to do it. Um, but, you know, as you get lower and lower down into sort of the, again, single pieces, the refreshes, the finishing touches, can you reduce the burden on that human such that it's a very easy, quick, and frankly, inexpensive proposition for the customer? Right. Okay. And so, so that's part of what the technology is going to that's continue a, to bring. a lot of what the technology to is going to bring. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just continue to make it easier and easier, re- right. reduce the yeah. friction, totally. and, and get that person to yeah. something that you know is going to delight them, to, yeah. to your point, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you've got so much data now that they only need to tell you a few things about themselves, yeah. right? And, and we're pretty good at surfacing it to the designer. Now, the issue is, at some point, it becomes a personalization. It becomes more expensive to build the technology than to just put a really great human on it. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of thought around: can you actually standardize or processize art? And there is an artistic. I mean, as you know, an incredible artistic element to designing your space, and we'll continue to have the human do that. What we're trying to do is say: here are 17 things that Lee may like. Now you, designer, take that and either reject it or accept it, but like create the art piece with that. So we're just shortcutting your initial processes. And again, we're shortcutting a lot of things around customer service and fulfillment. But ultimately, I think, again, it's too expensive to build something that is fully automated. All we're trying to do is to get our designers quicker and better at what they do. Well, and and I think you've talked about your own journey mm-hmm. with learning the language around design, <laughs> and, right? And yeah. and learning how to articulate w- what it is you're you're trying to sure. to say. And and uh, I've had a lot of experience with this in the past myself with people. So early on, when we were launching Domino Magazine, yeah. uh, we did a lot of focus groups, and we discovered that people had a terrible time talking about what modern furniture yeah. was, or, yeah. right? Or yeah. or or explaining their personal style. Sure. And designers talk to me about this all the time. Yeah. That, that clients, they, they can't draw the yeah. information accurately out of, right. their, of their clients, yeah. right? And that's what this massive database of yours can actually help facilitate right. a great deal. And, yeah. And, and can be a tremendous tool for designers. Yeah. And designers don't go away. Yeah. Because designers are artists, to your point. Yeah. And, yeah. and I yeah. feel very strongly about that yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. And so, but, but empowering them with tools yeah. that can make their job easier... That's exactly right. Right? Yeah. And so you've got now hundreds and hundreds of designers that you're working yeah, with. Yeah, lots of them. Right? <laughs> right? Lots of them. <laughs> lots of them. So, and, and, and some you've, you've brought on permanently. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And we've, those are the ones that are, what, exceptionally good at being empathetic to, to yeah, clients? Or, you I mean, know, what? It started as a test. So, okay. um, again, going back to this, why did we, you know, last this long where exactly. direct competitors. Five years? How did you last five, five years? years in this Listen, industry? That is, that makes me <laughs> quite the gray-haired right? Entrepreneur. You are the sage um, of I am, the e-designs world. Basically, still, still around yes. five years later. Um, but you know, I think again, going back to this point around, it has to be pretty good. Um, was so we always created this augmented marketplace model. So this idea that you can't just hook in and become a designer with relatively little screening. You go through a process. We test you in a variety of formats. You have a probationary period. We have other designers oversee you for a period. We look at how good you are from customer ratings or purchase rates, and we try and understand how good you are. And so we have this whole process where we were always limiting the amount of people on our platform. And the other thing is we managed, one of the things we did sort of naturally is we managed to what we call a fill rate. So we would say something broadly like, I will not take on another Hollywood Regency slash glam designer until I know all of my other Hollywood Regency slash glam designers were pretty full. In other words, if you came onto our platform, I could pretty much guarantee you work to the level at which you're comfortable. 
Right. And that actually, it was sort of a, again, it was it was more of an intuitive thing than, than something I necessarily had thought through. And frankly, I think Jesse, my COO, had thought this through. It's this idea that if we matter to you, you do better for the customer. Simple. Um, but again, it's, it's not something that everyone got right. Um, and so basically the idea is if we are able to provide you steady work that consistently sort of came your way, we provided you flexibility and the opportunity to do something that you found creatively interesting, that you would pay more attention to our clients and thus do a better job. Um, and so basically in taking people in-house, we just extended that concept. So the idea is, you know, you become a full-time employee with us and let's test in a small way whether or not this is economically positive or negative for us. Now, there are a lot of other reasons to do this besides economics, but, you know, sure. economics is the most crystal clear and the data is the most clear way of sort of assessing a program like this that we could think of. And so what we did was we hired a staff of five designers in our Denver office and, you know, we're sort of like, let's see what happens. And as it turns out, um, they are pretty profitable for us. So in other words, the increase in unit costs that I just took on is offset by the fact that A, people are happier with them and B, they sell more product. Um, and, 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 and so you might, you might grow that. You might. So no, we started to grow it. So then we were like, well, maybe it's just this, these unscalable five. Maybe you found five amazing ones and because they were in our office, they were particularly special and we just had a great recruiting process. So let's see if we can do it again. We actually went to a different city, Chicago, um, which actually has a lot of design talent, but not ultimately actually a lot of um, a lot of places for the designer to go. Um, so it's kind of an interesting town that way. Hmm. Um, and great design talent. So we figured let's yeah. find five there and see what happens there. And they, I think, did better in the first two two months than our, our initial five. And so now we've started to expand it. So we're, we're launching more in Denver, more in Chicago. We're trying to do a pod model where we have sort of remote but centralized um, areas of designers. So you could do trainings with them. They can feel like they have a community you can do events because I think some of that is just important um, and so we're launching in Austin and Raleigh North Carolina as well so we'll, we'll create some um, some local presences there too and we're, again we're looking for areas in which um, there's a lot of design talent not a ton of alternative options for um, you know a junior up-and-coming sort of designer New York City would be like our nightmare market for example like because there's so many there's places just so many places you can sure. go and it's you know it's just again the cost of living here is dramatically different from Austin Texas um, so <laughs> as discussed sometimes it sounds like you're building an e-commerce company and sometimes it sounds like you're building a really big interior design company do I sound confused well <laughs> I, 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 I don't know I mean but yeah yeah I think I mean the challenge is look there are two parts of our model and both have to strike pretty close to customer expectations to make this successful. Right. When we first launched, we spent a lot of time just thinking about the design model, right? Because our, our, our I was, I was going to say raison d'etre, but um, our reason for being, yes. because, because <laughs> if I'm on a podcast and I right. don't speak exactly. some sort of French raison cliche, again, yeah. Might have gone out. yeah, yes. just like, um, but our reason for being was, we provide a design service. The e-commerce part was important and it made us money, but frankly, it was sort of covered elsewhere. There is no reason for us to start another third-party marketplace for home. Right. Um, and so that was really where we spent a lot of our time for the first few years. We're shifting a little now, right? So now it's sort of a little bit in this place where we don't have a ton of competitors. We feel like we've, you know, we've gone far enough in sort of educating at least a small group of the market that this is an option for you. We feel like we sort of understand finally again, five years later, we kind of get how the design part works. And while we need to do tons of work to get it, you know, to where I want it to be. Mm. We, we've gotten our arms around it, certainly. And so now we're shifting a little bit into this e-commerce model for two reasons. First, frankly, it's hard not to, to your point. Margins are where they are. Sure. Um, the realities of running this business um, are sort of creeping up on us. And so, you know, even though, even as we raise another round of funding, it's, you know, you're starting to sort of peer at this, like, P word, profitability word, and hope that you get there. Um, and so, so that's the margin component. But also, I think we have hundreds of thousands of customers who have used us and like us, and we have no other way of engaging with them. And it's super frustrating. So I've spent a lot of this time, money, effort, making you as a customer happy. And then we walk away, and it's like, see ya. Um, and yeah. so, and so being able to provide an outlet for them, because, you know, in our research, they're still going to 
play, create, buy in the home space. You know, they're still actively engaging. Many of our customers are still actively engaging in home and home design, but we haven't been able to provide them a way to engage with us. And it's less about revenue, to be perfectly honest. Our, our, I'm sure our average selling price of any subsequent purchase is probably going to be far lower than what we get in your upfront design mm. at all. Um, and it's more about engagement. So our, earlier in our conversation, I talked a lot about referrals and driving organic traffic. Right. Well, if you haven't engaged with me in 12 months, it's highly unlikely that when you meet your friend who just moved into a fabulous apartment, that you're going to say something like, use Havenly. Can't tell you how great Havenly was. Yeah. Right? That's not going to be top of mind it's for you. It's not going to be. But I need it to be. I need right. you to talk about how awesome Havenly was for this model to work fundamentally. And so a lot of it's around providing points of engagement for people who aren't in the very high, again, AOV mindset but are still kind of playing and creating around home. So as you look forward from Havenly, you'll see us try. I mean, again, a lot of this is just trying some things. Um, But you'll see us try to do, um, I'd say, engage our customers in a different way pre and post design. And that's where this e-commerce component comes in. So we're actually undergoing a little bit of a a shift, um, frankly, both in my mindset, but also in terms of how we're building the team. And and you see a lot of opportunity out there in part because a lot of competitors have fallen away or... Yeah, you, you, yeah there's a little bit of to, that. And, yeah. and, you know, I think it's hard because, as we mentioned before, honestly, you feel like you're fighting the same fight as, as a lot of these people and you're in the same space and you have the same thesis on the space broadly as, mm. as a lot of your competitors. And so whenever one doesn't make it... It's hard. I mean, I think I think honestly, I've had some like internal turmoil about home polish not making it, um, and I think also it, it broadly casts a little bit of a shadow on the space. You know, so people say things like, "Well, if Benchmark couldn't make it happen, why do you think you're going to be better?" And so you have to sort of wrestle with those questions too. Well, and have you noticed any impact from from Laurel and Wolf yeah. going away? I mean, I'm yeah. assuming you have, right? And yeah, yeah, we have. Um, both Laurel and Wolf and Home Polish competed with us um, very directly in, again, the online ad marketplaces. Yeah. And so just the two of them sort of decreasing that pressure, we felt it in a different way. Now we had another competitor, Mod who actually isn't as much of a competitor, but like broadly in the same space. Um, we've seen them raise some funding and again, um, you know, decide to deploy that capital in paid marketing. So we are seeing some pressure there. But, you know, there's a difference between having one competitor um, and having, you know, 17 different companies bidding on the same um terms well and and they're very focused on this 3d rendering yeah model yeah. which is mm-hmm. which is much less of a focus for for you yeah we do it i mean it, for us it's it's a tool in our tool belt so right. we've you know switched most of our designs over to 3d rendering we built uh, some technology around it and we're continuing to build around it just as we do many other things around our platform um i think their perspective is interesting um it's it's far more around visualization, mm. um, and I think it's smart. I think it's great. And I, you know, again, I'm I'm a, a heavy respecter of competitors in the space. I think it's hard, um, but I, I often yeah. think that, like, again, we're sort of in the trenches fighting the same fight. Yeah, and they seem to be proving that this model can work. And sure, both of you, uh, Modsy Havenly. I mean. We haven't really gotten into this, but the acceptance from the design community around yeah. all of this, I know, is yeah. always challenging. It's challenging. Right. And it's, I get it. You know, there's so so much of me that, like, fully understands why what we are doing may feel diminishing for the designer. Um, and particularly, you know, someone who considers themselves, as they are, true artists and, you know, tradesmen in, in a craft. Um or sorry, craftsman in a trade. Um, and so one of the things that I, I tell my designers when I get the sort of rare opportunity to talk to them is I am in no way sort of cutting into an existing and thriving interior design business. All I am trying to do is provide more people at earlier stages an access point into what I think is pretty incredible. Um, and the reality is, like if you look at America, again, broadly, um, not everyone has this access point. And so can we find a model in which 
we are providing that access point without diminishing what is incredibly special about this industry. Um, and so that's, you know, that's largely what I've said to people now, you know, different people take it different ways and that's, you know, certainly totally acceptable. Sure. Um, one of our board members, um, his wife is a very wonderful and accomplished interior designer, um, out in Colorado, very, very well known in the, in the area. Um, and, um, you know, I think has been incredibly supportive of us because her point is I would never service these people. Um, but I can see the need. And when they call me, I just, you know, kind of reject them because they've, you know, while they might seem fun and fantastic, they just don't meet the needs of sort of my staff. Right. They don't have and, the budget for her. Right. And, of, yeah, I mean. and now, you know, here's an option and maybe, you know, and, and this is sort of like the forward thinking aspect. Maybe if some, if the 27 year old Adam starts using a designer when he's 45 and can afford someone, he's now educated on the idea that A, this exists and B, it can make his life materially easier. So are we actually expanding ultimately the upstream market by just providing them an access point earlier? Um, and, you know, fundamentally, I think it typically goes over pretty well with people that sort of understand markets. But again, I appreciate that like there is a, there there are designers that come onto our, our site and feel like we're not a fit for them. And um, while certainly not my favorite thing, it's oftentimes better if you realize that early than mm. if you realize that a year down the line. So we're very, very honest about what the process entails. Um, and, you know, we try to be as thoughtful as possible um, about, you know, sort of allowing people to express their art. Um, but, you know, we also say something like, we will say something like, if you're spending too much time doing this one thing that our technology can do, you're not going to end up liking the platform. You know why? Because you won't make enough money. It's just right. math. Right. Um, and we so have these tools for a reason. We have these tools and, for a reason. And yeah. you've got to, you know, if you don't want to use them, that's okay. But there's probably, you know, we're probably not going to work for you. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, again, it's okay. Um, but the acceptance has been mixed. <laughs> Uh, no, of course. I, I mean, I I know, I know, and I and I right, and I and I know that's yeah. not easy, and and yeah. I and I know that the design community yeah. can feel very proprietary uh, sure. about what it yeah. is they what it is they do, and and my hope is what what you just expressed yeah. that the more we can engage people who would not otherwise have been coming to an interior designer, yeah. uh, and and get them excited about what design can bring to their lives, sure. uh, it it hopefully will will make Make them want more and more of it. Certainly, o yeah. Over time, certainly. And yeah. as their their means and and their ability to to afford better things in in life sure. grows, yeah. uh, So too, we hope will their will their interest in in working with in interior designers or 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 other people that that can just supply sure. them with things that they might not have even realized that they wanted and totally. how nice it can make their their life as, as you totally. experienced yeah. your, yourself over yeah. time oh for sure i mean i was i mean you know i think um I, I think back to my first, you know, my attempt at putting together my own home with sort of like a mix of, it was terrible. It was, <laughs> it was just, I'm not even going to justify yeah. it. It was horrible. Well, um, and now I think my appreciation, so even like, you know, one of the more interesting things is even at a fairly high economic segment, people under budget dramatically for their home, you know, where they're totally comfortable buying a very, very expensive pair of shoes. So, um, you know, they're, they are just as uncomfortable thinking about, you know, a wonderful piece, um, a, you know, a, a sectional that they will sit on for the next 10 years every day, um, uncomfortable spending more than a certain amount for it. It's actually really interesting. And I think it's because of this lack of knowledge. So your average consumer doesn't interact with the home space as often. So they're not mentally budgeting for it as well as they are other items that um, that are, are of more of an everyday nature. Well, and it's actually one of the things that frustrates the to-the-trade industry a great I know. deal about, yeah. about companies totally. like, like RH yeah. and other companies yeah. that, that have put this idea totally. of, of price point in, in customers' Oh, heads. for sure. And not only uh, that, I mean, even more largely is like, the fact of the matter is we still get people who are educated, fantastic people yes. with large budgets, and they'll say something like, I can't get it in two days with free returns. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, you know, it's like 200 pounds, yes. you know? Um, yes. and, and because I think the way that customers shop has been trained by other people. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I say sometimes when I meet trade partners is 
someone else has kind of co-opted your storyline and you haven't done a good enough job at, at figuring out how to create the alternative storyline to the consumer. So the alternative storyline is this is special and this is going to be personal and unique to you. Um, and because it's delivered through a messenger, typically an interior designer, it's not necessarily getting across and restoration hardware is out there sort of saying, look, you can get this beautiful stuff and it's, you know, ship cheap and you know, whatever it is. Um, and so I, th I think that that's like ultimately sort of an issue. And so to the extent that I can broaden people's horizons. So even if they are buying from RH, which by the way, love, um, but they're buying from RH, but you know, maybe the next time they get a bonus or a raise and move into their next home, um, they start to think, well, what's above this? Well, and, and that's my hope for all of this, as I said, yeah. that yeah. as you were saying earlier, we move all of this upstream, we yeah. educate more people about living yeah. with design, about living with nice sure. furniture, about living with nice things, and, and then eventually they, they, they yeah. step up yeah. every step yeah. of the way. Yeah. And, and I hope that Havenly can, can do that. And, Me too. And I, and I, <laughs> I, I yeah, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's great that you've had hundreds of thousands of projects now, yeah. and, right? And yeah. that, you've, and that yeah. you've helped so many people decorate their yeah. their space uh and it'll be interesting to see as you grow yeah. sort of what what's the model that sure. that really that really sticks for you yeah uh, yeah yeah so we'll, yes. we'll stay tuned stay tuned yes i will be here <laughs> well and and we'll have you back because <laughs> no, that'd be fun. you're already over the five-year point i so, am i mean, I you're, mean now you're, i'm just you're I'm, the one I to am, watch I in am, this space absolutely so, i am the yoda of all yes, that interior exactly <laughs> You Design are who we're coming you will. to. For <laughs> yes, the, exactly. For yeah. the for the e-commerce yeah. wisdom. Uh, Lee Mayer, the co-founder of Havenly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been great. This is awesome. Yeah, this, this is, is great. Fun. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover the show. We love your feedback. Please give us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli. And I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.